we shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 22, we may read just now from the beginning of this chapter, Revelation chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And may God bless again to us this short reading of his word. And as I imagine you can see, there is a continuation out of chapter 21 into chapter 22. The two chapters really uh, reveal the same events or event, uh, different aspects of it, but the two uh, concluding chapters of Revelation, they reveal to us the end, as it were, of this present world as we know it and as we live in it, and present us with a church that has outlasted and outlived all the other institutions in history. Jesus had made a promise, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when we come to these final chapters, we see the church that he has built, and we see its beauty and its glory and its majesty and how marvelous it is to find God now dwelling among his people because there is no more curse. There is no sin. There is no more curse. There is no more grief. There is no more sorrow. The former things have passed away, and from the throne, God has said, he makes all things new. Now, as we come to the conclusion, not only of the book itself, but the canon of Scripture, we can see that there is a continuity between the two testaments from Genesis right through to Revelation, you can see there is continuity. It is one great revelation. And it is a revelation of God's glorious redemption. And you see the fall at the beginning of the scriptures. And then you see the fulfillment of that great promise, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And in the fullness of time, that seed would come and he would destroy the works of the devil. And he would present to himself his bride adorned, as it were, for her husband. But there isn't just merely continuity there is fulfillment. As we make our way through the word of God, you can see promise after promise after promise. But then you see fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment. God keeping all his promises, faithfully fulfilling them to his people. But then in addition to that, as we come to these chapters, we see there is a completion. God doesn't need to tell us anything more. Everything that he wants us to know, 
in order that we would be reconciled to him, in order that we would be part of this great scene at the end of this book. We see there is completion. God has completed the glorious work that he promised to begin in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it is truly amazing to see when we come here to the final chapters when so much has passed away, so much has been destroyed of the opposition that has so fiercely opposed Christ and his church, one thing still stands secure, and that is the throne. And you will see in this chapter 22, twice it is mentioned, verse 1, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God. Every other throne on earth has disappeared. And it is interesting to see when we're talking about the new Jerusalem, the great city, the bride of Christ, and so on, and uh, the temple of God, that the only piece of furniture the only furnishing that we have here is the throne, nothing else. That is the only piece that here is recognized and our attention is drawn to it. The throne of God. Again in verse 3, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in the midst of it. The throne of God stands as secure as ever in spite of all the opposition. Every attack that has been mounted against it, there is the security of the church because that throne remains. Now, you will see here in these chapters that in many respects, we are taken back to understand the glory of what is written here. We have to remind ourselves, as we said last week, of what happened away at the beginning of our history. When God put man into the garden to dress it and keep it, he failed. And the result was a terrible fall. If you go back to the opening chapters of Genesis, just to remind ourselves of what happened, the contrast is truly uh, clear in the Revelation, chapter 21, verse 27. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now here is this new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. Uh, we shall see there are other designations given. It is really a return to the original relationship between God and Adam created without sin, the first Adam. Now, in this new environment, this new city, the new temple, as we shall see shortly, nothing shall enter into it that shall defile it. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now go back to Genesis 3 and remind ourselves what happened there. We said last week that Adam was responsible not only to keep, the, not only to dress the garden, but he was 
to keep it. He was to maintain it, but he was to protect it from any intrusion, from anything that ought not to be there, anything that would come in to defile it, and certainly to protect it against any creature that would come in to make a lie in it. And that's what exactly the serpent did. He came in and he brought the lie about God and his character and he tempted Eve into disobedience. Now in the New Jerusalem, in the holy city, we are told there shall be no more curse. No more curse. And there shall be no more sorrow. And no more tears and no more crying because there will be no more curse. Because there will be no sin. Nothing that defiles comes in here. What do we read? When the Lord comes and calls Adam to account in chapter 3 of Genesis, the Lord, verse 9, the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Now, why did God do that? Because prior to his act of disobedience, God and man communicated together. God came and he walked in the cool of the day and Adam enjoyed holy and hallowed communion with his creator. There was nothing to separate them. There was nothing to alienate God from Adam or Adam from God. And therefore, when God comes Adam's hiding. He hadn't done this before. Instead of Adam coming to greet his God and his creator, he's hiding. And God calls Adam, where art thou? It was as though God came to the usual place, the usual meeting place with Adam. But Adam isn't there. Adam is ashamed to meet God now. Adam is Instead, trying to evade God, he's trying to hide from God. So God, he uh, held court in that very garden where the disobedience had taken place. What did God say? Notice in Revelation, there shall be no more sorrow. There shall be no more curse. But we go back to learn what really is to be no more. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more curse. We go back to Genesis to see where the curse begins, where the sorrow begins, where we're introduced to these human experiences that Adam, before the fall, had no knowledge of. Now, when God holds court, he calls Adam to account and Eve and the serpent. And look what happens, verse 13 of Genesis 3. The Lord God said, well, we might start uh, verse 11 to get the connection. God said to Adam, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And then God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Does God stop there and say, well, the serpent has caused all this. The serpent is responsible for all this. Did God merely blame the serpent and excuse Adam or excuse Eve? 
Adam was responsible for keeping the garden and he let the serpent in. Furthermore, Eve had not named the serpent. We know that last week it was Adam who named all the beasts and God approved because Adam's mind and God's mind were in a harmony and in agreement. Now Adam allowed the serpent into the garden to commune with his wife Eve. Eve had not named the beasts, but Adam had. And Adam named this particular beast as the serpent because he had knowledge and understanding that it was this Serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field. It was the most dangerous beast to allow into the garden. And Adam hadn't kept him out. And so whenever Eve is deceived by the serpent, well, she blames the serpent. But Adam blames Eve for giving him the fruit. Now, how did God respond to these excuses? Well, verse 14. (coughs) The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust, uh, shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Uh, Sometimes... We are so taken with the curse that was pronounced upon the ground for Adam's sake that we overlook this previous curse. The divine curse that is pronounced upon the old serpent, the devil. He is cursed. And uh, when God pronounced this curse upon him, He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. You and the woman became great friends. And she gave you place. And you corrupted her mind. And you deceived her. But I am going to change that. I am going to put enmity between you. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then what happens? Now here's the entrance of sorrow. No more sorrow. But here's the entrance of it, the reasons for it. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Why was this sorrow to enter into the experience of the woman? She'd never had sorrow before. Why does sorrow enter in now? Because God had said, Uh, what is this thou hast done? She had not listened to her husband. Instead, she listened to the serpent. She took her counsel not from her husband, but from the serpent. Then, verse 17, unto Adam he said, because... Thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life, and so on. So you see what happened. Where did sorrow, why did sorrow enter? Because instead of the woman listening to Adam, she listened to the serpent. 
And instead of the woman, instead of Adam listening to God, he listened to the woman. And this is how all this sorrow enters in. God is left out. And the order that God had established had been ignored. And now, here is sorrow and grief and tears and the curse because of Adam's neglect, because Adam had not maintained the authority that God had given him. He was to be, as we read and sang last week from Psalm 8, God had appointed Adam to rule over creation. And he had failed. Adam had failed. And he had demonstrated that he had failed to maintain divine order and he had failed to maintain divinely appointed authority. That was the reason for it. Now then, when we come to the final chapters of Revelation, what a reversal. Here we see that which was lost, that which had begun as God's punishment for sin, now the whole scene is changed. And here we are brought back to the tree of life. When we go back to Genesis because of their sin, because of the curse that was pronounced, we read in Genesis chapter 3 when God had pronounced his judgment on this scene. The Lord then, verse 23 of Genesis 3, sent him forth, that is the man, forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep what? To keep the way of the tree of life. Not to keep the tree, but to keep the way to the tree. Because Adam did not know in his sin, he was in no state, no condition, to now come and partake of that tree of life. He's separated from it. He's driven out from it. But here when we come to Revelation 22, what does John say he's shown now? He showed me a pure river of water of life, clearest crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. There is now access to the tree of life. You go to verse 14 of this chapter 22. The great benediction, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. There is access now to this tree of life. The flaming sword, there are no cherubims guarding the way to it, preventing access to it. There is no flaming sword to consume those who would attempt to approach this tree of life. It is here now, accessible, and indeed those who have access to it have access through the gates of this city. Now we already noted the gates are all of pearls. 
the pearl of great price, they enter in through Christ and him alone into this city to be inhabitants of it. But you will see that there are differences in what is recorded of the scene here to that which is recorded in Genesis. John says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the scene is somewhat different. You go back to Genesis, and there we're we're given a description of the place where God put Adam, the man that he had made. Verse 8 of Genesis 2, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is good for food. <coughs> the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then here is further description. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. That's amazing. You'll find these archaeologists and historians, and they are always searching for these four rivers. And then they try to discredit the scripture and the accuracy of the record because they don't seem to be able to find them and connect them. What they overlook is the fact of the flood, that God sent a deluge that altered the face of the earth itself and certainly would have changed the uh, scene here. These rivers, notice there are four of them. Out of the uh, a river went out of Eden to water the garden. Obviously it was a It was a river of the water of life to water the garden. But when we come to John's description in Revelation 22, there is a river and its water is as clear as crystal. But it doesn't divide into four heads. It is just one river now flowing out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now the scene here in Genesis 2, the river went out of Eden to water the garden and from thence, as it went from the garden, it was parted and became into four heads. Now four in the scripture is an important number. It's the number of the world, north, south, east, and west. And so on, that is what it represents, generally speaking. And here the river divides as though it is carrying life to the four corners of the earth, sustaining poor man even in his fallen condition. When we come to Revelation, he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal. And it isn't coming from any earthly source or any earthly fountain. It proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And you will see here in this city the sources of life. These two particular sources, the water of life, and then in verse 2, in the midst of the street of it, And on either side of the river was there the tree of life. Now we are not told in Genesis what the fruit of this tree of life was. Here we are told that there is access to this tree of life and it bears twelve manner of fruit. It bears twelve manner of fruits, 
and yielded her fruit every month. Now what is John seeing here? You won't find any trees in your garden or your orchard like this, bearing twelve manner of fruits, and bearing twelve manner of fruits every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here is the description that John gives us of the source of life for this city and its inhabitants. It is a city of light. There is no curse, no sorrow, no more death, no more grief. It is a city that speaks in every respect of life. It is a living city. It is spiritually the bride of Christ. So it is the living bride of Christ, sustained in life by the water of life and the fruits of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the garden. And those in verse 14 of this chapter who enter in through the gates have access to this tree, both to its fruit and to its healing leaves. Now, that does not mean, of course, that in the city there's some form of disease or death or whatever, and therefore the healing leaves are needed. That is not what John is depicting for us. Rather, he is describing to us the one who is at the very heart of the life of this city. He is the one, remember, throughout his ministry. You look, for example, at John chapter 4. and There the Savior is in conversation with the woman at the well. She has come to draw water, and Jesus meets her there, and a conversation ensues. One of the things that Jesus says to her, John 4, is in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and he, and who it is, that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus goes on, verse 14, to say, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what is the Savior claiming? I am the source of living water. And John is seeing this living water flowing out from the throne itself. It flows from Christ, the glorious, exalted Redeemer. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when a man receives life from Christ, it is spiritual life. And Jesus says it is like a well of water springing up within him. If you go over to chapter (coughs) 7, chapter 7 of John, you'll see a scene described when Jesus is in the temple, the great feast of the Passover is about to begin, and we're told... Verse 37 of John 7, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me, as the scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So what are we seeing as the source of life and the living water in this city? The life that sustains 
the bride of the Lamb. It is none less than Christ himself. He is the source of this life. He is the one that sustains. He gives life and he sustains life. But then also in the midst of the tree of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. And you will see that the river flows but on either side of it is the tree of life. The two sources of life are combined here as though they're one, the river flows The trees are growing, the tree of life is growing at at its side, bearing twelve manner of fruits. Now where is the tree of life to be found? Cursed is every one that hangeth upon the tree. That's the curse of the law. But there shall be no more curse. Christ will never die again. The curse of the law will never descend on his holy head ever again. There shall be no more curse. There was a curse upon the serpent. There was a curse upon the ground for Adam's seed. But then the curse descended. The curse that was pronounced that brought sorrow to our, the, into the lives of our first parents. The curse now is moved unto the holy head of the Redeemer. Cursed is every one that hangeth upon the tree. But there shall be no more curse. He will not hang in shame again. But that tree upon which he died becomes the tree of life. It is Christ, through his death, through his receiving of the curse upon his own holy head, it is he who through that death gives life. Jesus himself said, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, You have no life in you. Your life is through my death, through my uh, dying under the curse. Now hear what is John really telling us. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's because of the Lamb that there is light in the midst of the street of it and on either side was the tree of life. In the midst is this tree of life. In the midst is Christ himself. Now then, you will see that there is access to those who come Into this city, verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life. That they might have right of access to the tree of life. They now are not barred. There is no flaming sword in the way. Why? Because Christ himself has faced that sword. The glorious one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life because I have opened up the way. I have borne the wrath of God. That flaming sword that turns every way has been turned unto me. And this is the glorious sight, the bride of Christ redeemed by precious blood, she sustained in life against all the odds, as it were. Every enemy that has confronted her, every foe that has 
charged against her. They're all defeated. Why? Because God in the midst of her doth dwell. Nothing shall her remove. Now, then, John tells us something further. He says there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Here again, you have the contrast with what happened in the Garden of Eden. There's the servant of God, the first Adam, and God put him exactly where he wanted him, in the garden, to dress it and to keep it. That was a service. That was the service he was to render to God. He failed. He failed miserably to fulfill the service that God appointed him to do. But here in this new Jerusalem, this holy city, this new Eden as we shall see, his servants shall serve him. There's no disobedience here. His servants shall serve him. They shall serve him obediently and lovingly, and these servants shall come from all the nations of the earth. And then verse 4. How amazing, how utterly remarkable. And they shall see his face. And they shall see his face. That was something that even Moses, when he asked God on one occasion, show me thy glory, God hid him in the cleft of the rock. And then the Lord passed by, but what did God tell Moses? He could only look on his hinder parts. Thou shalt not see my face, for no man can see God and live. And here we are told, John's describing such intimacy by, on the part of the citizens of this bride, this, this new Jerusalem, this holy city. They have access to Christ, and because they have access to him, through him they have access to the whole Godhead, (coughs) and they shall see his face. Can you imagine, or even begin to imagine, even try to imagine, what that must be like, to be so near to God, to be so holy, to be so pure, that they shall see his face. They shall see the very face of God. Now, in addition to seeing his face, his name shall be in their foreheads. Now, it is interesting, you go back to the seven churches the beginning of this book and there's a promise made to seven promises are made to the overcomers in those seven churches and every one of those promises is seen then fulfilled in the chapter 21 and chapter 22 for example in Revelation and the uh, chapter 2, you have the first promise that is given to those who would overcome in the church at Ephesus. Uh, what does <coughs> God say? Verse 7 of Revelation 2, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's the first promise. And you go to Revelation 21 and 22, and it is now fulfilled. They have access to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, which takes us back again to paradise in Eden. The garden there, that was God's paradise, and that's where he put uh, the man that he had made. Now we're back in Revelation, back to paradise, but there's nothing, no sin will enter here, no tempter will enter here, no curse will be pronounced here. The promise is fulfilled. If you go down then to the next promise, to they that would overcome in the church of Smyrna, Verse 11, chapter 2. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And we've already looked at the first and the second death. He shall not be hurt uh, by the second death. So you see, and you can go through the seven promises that are made And what are we seeing? The faithfulness of God. When we come to these closing chapters, we are here seeing the evidence of the absolute reliability and the faithfulness of God doing for his people exactly what he said he would do. Now, the one thing that is outstanding about this new Jerusalem, in contrast to the old Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem was the holy city of the Old Testament. It was the city, the great, the city of the great king, the city of one nation. It was the city of David, the king of Israel. It was the holy city of the solemnities of God's covenant people. The remarkable thing is when we come to the book of the Revelation, the numerous uh, remarks that are made about and the a description that is given of the nations, not a nation anymore, but nations. Go back, for example, to chapter 5. <coughs> and there in verse 9 we read of this great choir, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests. You see the great extension of the kingdom of the Redeemer the great number of the redeemed who are now made kings and priests. God said of his ancient people of old that he would make them a nation of priests unto himself. Now he is making nations of kings and priests unto himself. And they shall reign on the earth. You go over to chapter Uh, 14 of Revelation and the verse 6 you will see again there I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people there is a gospel And it is for every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And the effects 
of that gospel. Paul said he was not ashamed of it, for it was the power of God unto salvation. And that power has been an evidence throughout all the nations. And so the redeemed are redeemed by blood out of all these nations, and they're now singing the new song in the chapter 7, if you go back to it, <coughs> chapter 7 and verse 9, John, and we're jumping back to passages we've gone over before, but it's just to emphasize this particular point. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation! To our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Here are all the nations of the redeemed, the redeemed out of all these nations. And they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And now they are rejoicing around the throne of the Lamb and they're exalting the Lamb. What are they saying? Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Because the gospel is the gospel of the Lamb. The gospel was in type in the Old Testament. The Lamb of the Passover was slain, offered up to God. It was the sacrificial Lamb, but it was the typical Lamb making a typical atonement for sin. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world has taken away the sin of multitudes out of every nation and tribe and kindred and tongue. And we're told here in this in these closing chapters Uh, We're told that verse 24 of chapter 21, for example, the nations of them which are saved or redeemed shall walk in the light of it and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor into it. What are they doing? They're bringing their glory and their honor into this city. The bride of Christ. They're, as it were, casting their crowns down at his feet. We're told, verse 26, they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. What a remarkable scene. What a different world. What a remarkable, mighty change. God isn't talking here, or John isn't recording, merely about individuals, but whole nations. Nations bringing their glory. They're not boasting now of their power. They're not boasting now of their might. They're not boasting of their glory. You remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, and he was boasting of the great Babylon that he had created, the mighty empire that he had built. Ah, here's what the kings are doing now. They're bringing their glory and their honor, and they're laying it all out at the feet of the glorious Redeemer, They are now before the throne of the Lamb. They're before the throne of the Lamb. And they're casting their glory all down at the throne of the Lamb. You remember the birth of the Savior. And the record there, 
back in the gospel according to Matthew, whenever the wise men were told from the east when Jesus was born. It's quite remarkable that we read chapter 2 of Matthew. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, (coughs) saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And then we read further down in that chapter, verse 11, When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him. There you have God in the flesh tabernacling among men. In a sense, the wise men had come to the Holy of Holies because God was there. Not a mere beam, not merely one that would be announced to be the king of the Jews, but he was God of very God. Here was something unique. There was no holy of holies with a great veil that men couldn't approach God. Here are these men from the east, Gentiles, and they have come. And the remarkable thing is they are the only ones on record who brought gifts to the Son of God in our nature. They brought and presented him, they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures, presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that was directing us forward to see the beginning of the great fulfillment of God's great promises. The nations would come and they would bring their glory and they would bring their honor. They would lay it all down at the feet of the Lamb. He would be exalted among the heathen. He would be exalted throughout the earth. That's what God had promised to him. In Psalm 2, God promised he would be exalted. And here you see it beginning with the wise men from the east. Now when we come to Revelation, what a glorious scene it is. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And uh, you see, uh, and with this we must stop. They shall see his face, and that is most remarkable that now they are brought into such a relationship with God that they can actually see his face. There's no veil anymore. They see God as he is. They have a sight of God and a nearness to God that not even Moses could experience. Because here is the company of just men made perfect. And when they are made perfect, they are really perfect. And they're able to stand in the presence of the God of perfection. And they shall see his face. Now, I can't explain that to you no more than you could understand. Because we have no idea, no language, no ability to even begin to describe the face of God. Such will be the tremendous change that the saints of God will go through, that they shall see his face. But remember while they do, 
There are many, many others. And they've been cast into the lake of fire. Without this city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. They are not there to see his face. They are not there to partake of the tree of life. They are not there to glorify the Lamb. They are with the devil and his angels. And that's the future for every one of us. That's the future. Before every one of us, either one of these abodes for all eternity. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, enable us to understand and enable us to appreciate the great marvels of thy work of redemption, that which was planned in eternity past, and that which is being wrought out through the centuries of the history of men. May we indeed be desiring to be of that number who have access to the tree of life, who may drink from that river of living water, who will be able to join the ranks of those who bring all their glory and lay it down at the footstool of the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Oh, do thou grant that we would be there amongst that throng. Forbid that any of us would be outside cast away forever. Hear us, pardon us, receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.